long box of darkness, my old friend. Come to browse through you again. Because the issues that I've been reading is the reason why I'm not sleeping. And the panels that are crowded in my brain still remain within the long box of darkness. Well, listeners, as you can tell, I've had some time on my hands, enough time to write a little musical jingle for the show. But I won't quit my day job and apologies ahead of time to Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel for borrowing their melody. I'll I'll work on it. Let's just say this won't replace the show's main theme. With that out of the way, let's get to it. Here's the main introduction for the show. Welcome to the Long Box of Darkness, a podcast exploring horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek into the Long Box of Darkness. This week we'll be looking at Mike Mignola and Christopher Golden's Baltimore from Dark Horse Comics, specifically the collection entitled The Plague Ships, which is volume one in the series. It consists of five issues and it's probably not extreme horror. It might not even be moderate horror. I'd classify it as more horror light but it's definitely got all the classical horror elements. You've got monsters, you've got possession, you've got the undead, and deaths in abundance. So I think it'll satisfy any horror nuts craving for blood. And it's personally one of my favorite series. I like it almost as much as I like Hellboy from Mignola. So I'm really excited to get into this. But I do have some announcements to make this week. Unfortunately, Erin can't make it, so our Erin segment will have to be cancelled. But she'll be back again next week. The reason why she's not here is it's her birthday and she went traveling a bit. So, lucky her. I'm stuck here and she's gallivanting around the world. Oh well, at least I can live vicariously through her Facebook feed. Alright, well with that out of the way, um, let's get into Baltimore. You've written horror about everything from World War I vampires to robots linked to human minds to red balloons. 
Which do you find most frightening? The monsters of the legendary past, the terrors of the plausible present, or our possible futures? It's a tough question. Um, I have to say that I enjoy the monsters of the past the most. I have the most fun with that, um, with mythology and folklore and the weird stuff. Um, but as far as what I find the most frightening, it's definitely the possible monsters of the future, um, which we're sort of seeing born and raised every day. First, a bit of history about the comic book itself. Baltimore was first published as a novel by Christopher Golden and Mike Mignola, obviously with some illustrations by Mignola as well. Oh, I'm really uh, struggling with Mignola's name today. I just want to say that G. <laughs> anyway, so old Mike and Christopher, they published this novel called Baltimore, The Steadfast Tin Soldier and the Vampire. And that was way back in 2007. That's when I first picked it up. I saw it on Amazon. Uh, it had pretty good reviews, and I decided to give it a try. It certainly looked like a lot of fun. And it was Mignola trying his hand at a novel, which, you know, could be a big mistake. Um, but it turned out to be a success. And then Dark Horse decided to publish a series from 2010 onwards featuring Baltimore, which filled in some of the gaps in the storyline uh, that the novel had glossed over. So we're, we'll be looking at the comic book series from 2010. Uh, just to give you a bit of uh, background on the setting itself, Baltimore is set a few months or a few, yeah, almost a year after the First World War ended. And it's set in an alternate reality, so it's not in the Hellboy universe proper. Uh, the war ended not because of the reasons that it actually did in reality, but because of some supernatural reasons. And Baltimore himself, Lord Henry Baltimore, was a soldier in this war, in World War I. He awakened some ancient evil, and he is the cause for all the woes and plagues and death that is now ram running rampant um, all over Earth. So that is basically the background of the setting. Now, Baltimore himself is a character uh, very much in the vein of a monster hunter, almost like Hellboy himself, except he operates completely independently. He doesn't have a BPRD backing him up. And he is, even though he only has one leg and a wooden peg leg, he is very formidable. He's always carrying around... Uh, large amounts of weapons, swords, knives, daggers, guns, handguns, rifles. He's got a big harpoon on his back as well, which he likes to hurl at uh, his undead foes. So he's a monster hunter, and he's got a reason for hating the monsters. Obviously a personal one. We'll get into that as we go through the, the first collection here. So a very interesting character. I was immediately drawn to him because he he has a very distinctive look. Like I say, with the massive harpoon on his back, he's completely bald with this wooden peg leg. I thought it, at first it was like Captain Ahab. <laughs> and 
strangely enough, Ahab hunted monsters, if you think about Moby Dick as the ultimate monster. So I really enjoyed the series from the get-go, the, through the novel at first, and I was very, very happy to hear that it was published or going to be published as a comic book. But at first I thought it was going to be Mignola doing the art and Christopher Golden doing the scripting. That turned out not to be the case. Mignola is doing the scripting and a guy called Stenbeck is doing all the art. And he is a fantastic illustrator. I've been enjoying his uh, illustrations in um, Baltimore. He draws monsters very distinctively. And um, Dave Stewart does the color, so you've got this great juxtaposition of dark and light and bright reds and, and really eerie blackness that comes across very well on the page. Dark Horse has collected it in a series of hardcovers. I think there's five volumes at the moment. And um, this being volume one, it's a lavish hardcover, beautifully presented by Dark Horse. So I'd advise anybody who's interested in Mignola and his work or interested in Dark Horse horror comics to pick this up. So before we get into issue one, I just want to remind everyone listening that there will be some spoilers ahead. I'll try not to ruin the ending of every comic or storyline, but sometimes it's unavoidable, so I apologize for that. So please, if you want to read the comic books and come back later, you can. There's still more to the show after I've discussed Baltimore. We've got our other segments. So I'm hoping that I won't spoil anything. I did not uh, give the spoiler warning for my first two shows. I apologize for that, but this time around I will. But as I say, I'll try not to spoil any major events in the comic book. All right, here we go. Baltimore issue one, art by Ben Stenbeck, written by Mike Mignola and Christopher Golden, entitled The Plague Ships. Colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Clem Robbins. The comic book starts off with a Zeppelin crew of Nazi or of German vampires running around a European town. And as they flee someone or something, they shapeshift into bats and try to escape. But a harpoon hits one, and as it turns out, it's Baltimore hunting them down. So there's a, a Zeppelin flying, uh, their getaway Zeppelin, I should say, flying up above a church steeple. And they climb up this line and some of them fly up in the form of bats uh, to jump into the Zeppelin and escape uh, Baltimore, who's hunting them down. He's already uh, cut apart quite a few of them, as it turns out. And how he manages to keep pace with them with only a wooden peg leg, I would never know. Still, uh, you get a notion of quite how uh, adept Baltimore is at wielding his weapons within the first few pages. He's a, obviously a great swordsman, and he uses his sword to usually behead the vampires in one swift stroke. And then he also uses his guns, sidearms, to slow them down, <clears throat> and his harpoons to take them out by, by impaling them through their hearts. So we, we get a sense of that within the first few pages. It's got a lot of action, great atmospheric setting, this old dusty European town in the middle of the night, these vampires fleeing something that they're scared of, and you're left wondering what could it be that vampires would be scared of in the night. And it turns out to only be one man with a wooden peg leg. Decked out in an arsenal, true, but if I 
you know, was the leader of a group of vampires, I would take my chances fighting him. Obviously, that would be a mistake, but hey, I wouldn't know any better at that point in time. So the vampires climb up uh, this rope ladder or rope towards the Zeppelin intent on escaping. And then as Baltimore pursues them, you see an old witch, a gypsy, a gypsy witch from the village uh, observing the fight in a scrying bowl. And um, she assists Lord Baltimore by first insulting him, saying that he's letting them get away, and then calling down the lightning to electrocute the wire that they're climbing on, setting the Zeppelin on fire. Eventually, it causes an explosion, thereby killing all the vampires. <clears throat> Baltimore is injured. He falls down and um, hits the ground hard. But <clears throat> he's cared for by the witch woman and her granddaughter. So we get to meet these two interesting personalities. Uh, the witch woman's never given a name, but her granddaughter's name is Vanessa Calderas. And right from the get-go, as soon as Baltimore regains consciousness in their small house, she insists on accompanying him. She wants to be free of this horrible town, and she says this town's under a curse just like the entire world. Um, every, everyone is suffering from a plague, a plague which Baltimore knows all too well, since he, we'll find out later, is the cause of this plague. <clears throat> but Baltimore says it's too dangerous, she can't go with him. He asks them for information about a vampire that he's pursuing called Hagus, a vampire with a scar and who's missing one eye. Um, they say they will give him the information, at least Vanessa will, if he takes her with him. So as he heads out the door, still not sure whether he's going to allow her to accompany him, some villagers capture him and imprison him in jail. And they say that he has to wait for a judge by the name of Duvich to come from a nearby city. And this judge is a kind of inquisitor who will determine whether Baltimore, Baltimore is holy or whether he has been tainted by whatever demons are haunting Europe at this time. So that's basically issue one. Great issue, lots of action. Uh, very dark, but like I say, Dave Stewart's colors uh, make it makes everything visible. And some great characters. You've got two great-looking uh, drawings of Baltimore himself um, uh, showcasing his prowess. And uh, no full-page spreads, but um, some dialogue, lots of action. The dialogue really is only between Baltimore, the witch lady, and her granddaughter. And it's some great dialogue. We'll get into that later when I discuss my favorite bits of um, panels and, and dialogue later on. So uh, with that, we find out a little bit more about Baltimore. He's pursuing this vampire who he's got a grudge against, but he somehow has something to do with the plague that's been striking Europe. Now, this plague does not seem to turn people into vampires. It simply seems to kill them infect them uh, with sores growing all over their faces, almost like the Black Plague um, from the Dark Ages. But it does have a supernatural origin, as we'll find out later again. All right, that's basically the end of uh, issue one. Lots of new characters introduced. Judge Duvich, whom uh, we, we will still meet later on in the series, he's going to play a very important role. And then we get straight into issue two. Baltimore and Vanessa uh, basically escape the jail with Vanessa bringing him a key. 
if Baltimore agrees to take her with him, which he does, since he doesn't seem to have much choice choice in the matter, and as they head down towards the docks where Vanessa says a friend of hers has a ship which they can use to to escape, um, they pass a, a mobile crematorium where plague victims are being cremated uh, by a lady uh, who accepts payment for her services. She obviously has this crematorium, takes it all around the country, and she's making quite a bit of uh, moolah off of this side business that she's got going because there's so many dead bodies around. You don't want the disease to spread further. You need some way of disposing of them, so she's running this mobile crematorium but there's something funny about it because there once uh, baltimore observes that once the corpses go in there's no smoke coming out the top of the chimney of the flue that she has mounted on the top of this crematorium vehicle so there's something strange about it but still they don't have time to investigate baltimore and vanessa get on the ship and they sail away from this little european town where obviously the people are hostile towards him. They want to throw him in jail. They want him to wait for the Inquisitor, Judge Duvich. Then on the ship, things get boring. Vanessa asks Baltimore to tell him about, uh, to tell her about his past, and he does. He obliges. And it turns out Baltimore, during his um, origin story, we discover he was a captain fighting in the trenches of World War I. But once his platoon, one night his platoon had to initiate uh, a night attack and they were spotted by German flares and they were summarily shot to pieces with German artillery, by German artillery and machine guns. Baltimore was only wounded in the shoulder and the leg though, so he awoke in the middle of the night to see large bat-like creatures tearing at the corpses of his men and he seemed to be the only one who was still kicking so one of the bat-like creatures approached him, huge, giant bats, basically, monstrous bats. And as this bat uh, intended to obviously rip out Baltimore's throat, Baltimore grabbed a bayonet from a nearby rifle and attacked the bat and managed to slash the bat across the, across the face. And the bat in, you know, subsequently lost an eye. This bat then went crazy. It started screaming and throwing a tantrum and all the other bats were in awe or in fear of it. And then the bat grabbed Baltimore by the leg and pulled him closer and breathed some foul air into the hole in his leg, into the wound in his leg, thereby infecting Baltimore with some unnatural form of gangrene. And then um, after that, the blood that seeped from the cut on the monstrous bat's face, dripped onto the ground. And that's where the plague actually started. So at that time, as a reader, you're not sure yet what is happening here. Uh, these are obviously vampires, but you know, uh, Baltimore obviously wounded one. And um, this, uh, this vampire has taken uh, immediate dislike, obviously, to Baltimore and is out for revenge. But it does fly away along with its brethren. And then Baltimore awakens in a hospital to find that his leg has been amputated in an army hospital. All right, so um, then uh, the, the issue ends with Baltimore waking up in this army hospital, uh, hospital after he's accepted that his 
lost his leg, uh, suddenly a dark figure stands next to his bed. And this figure only has one eye, and his eyes, or the, the remaining eye, is burning red. And he is the vampire Hagus, the selfsame monstrous bat that Baltimore slashed and attacked on the battlefield. And he says, you made a big mistake attacking one of us. You've, you've awakened us from our ancient slumber. We were content to mindlessly prey on the corpses of your battlefields. And we reverted to our animalistic nature and slept in a type of, our intelligence slept, hibernated within our animalistic minds. But now with that one stroke, you've awakened me and thereby you've awakened all my brothers and sisters and the vampires walk the earth again. So it turns out that um, vampires on Baltimore's earth, they uh, reigned supreme millennia ago, but then because of boredom um, or lack of interest in human affairs because of their immortality, they decided to uh, sleep, slumber, but they still needed to feed, so they let their animalistic natures take over. They remained in bat-like form, forgetting their former humanity or their um, cognitive, human cognitive abilities. And so they became animals. But with Baltimore attacking one of them, breaking their cycle of feeding, it um, awoke the desire for revenge in one of them, Uh, this being Hagus. And that caused the vampires to again Uh, assume their intelligence and to reawaken in this new age. So at first they've come to realize that humanity is a curse and they need to be wiped from the earth. So Hagus initiated the plague by dripping his blood on the earth itself, thereby infecting the very world with his unholy blood. And that's where issue two ends. Great art in this issue as well. I love the battlefield scenes, especially the scene where the German machine gunners basically go to town on this poor hapless platoon uh, that has wandered into their sights. So you've got Baltimore and his men surrounded by flares. They don't know what's going on. They're totally surprised. They know they're dead meat, and the Germans just start ripping. And they're caught in kind of a crossfire too because, yeah, you can see Germans shooting from two sides. And they're simply mauled to death by the bullets. Luckily, Baltimore survived. But uh, as it turns out, not so lucky. It would have been better if he died because the entire earth subsequently became infected with this plague. There was no way that Baltimore could have known that. He fought for his life. But Hagus initiated this great evil that befell humanity. And uh, some good dialogue throughout this issue as well, especially between Vanessa and Baltimore. And it turns out Vanessa is quite popular amongst the sailors. Her father used to be a sea captain, so uh, she's got this uh, bantering going on with them. And then Baltimore is his same usual self, brooding, uh, humorless, but very eloquent when he does start talking, especially when he describes his origin story. So great issue too. And this leads us directly into issue three. Um, We've got uh, issue three starting off with um, Baltimore again speaking to Hagus in a flashback. 
in the army hospital. And um, he finds out more about, you know, the vampires and the state of affairs and uh, what their plans are. Hagus says that he has cursed Baltimore personally and that he will make sure everyone Baltimore loves will die. So he disappears and Baltimore is left to recover in the army hospital. Not believing any of it, of course, but uh, fearing for his family. So he wants to get out of there as soon as possible. Then we go back to the prison where Baltimore and Vanessa are still on the ship. And now this is something really strange that happens here. Um, they pass through a storm and Baltimore and Vanessa and the sailors observe some giant jellyfish-like creatures floating through the sky. I don't know what the significance of this is. At first I thought, all right, um, this world obviously has some strange beings and creatures and animals that, that we don't have. But these are really properly jellyfish. They're not Lovecraftian octopi or any, any monsters like that. They're giant jellyfish that are floating in the sky, seemingly abandoning Earth. So it could be that these are gods from the deep who have now decided to quit the mortal plane because of this plague and the war between the vampires and the humans that, are, that have broken out. And we also discover that, as it turns out, World War I ended because of the plague. Literally everyone at home was dying. So the soldiers just gave up. They stopped fighting the war and they just wanted to be with their family. So they just abandoned the war. Nobody really won conclusively. So that's what I meant earlier when I said the war had a supernatural conclusion to it, a supernatural reason for the war ending. And uh, Baltimore and Vanessa observed these giant jellyfish abandoning the earth during a storm on the ship. And that was very weird for me. I don't know exactly why they showed that, but I thought maybe it would come back later on in the series, just like the uh, portable or mobile crematorium does. But I haven't seen uh, any sign of those jellyfish since, even though I've read more than 40 issues of Baltimore by now. Still, uh, food for thought. Then, um, during the course of issue three, uh, we see Baltimore and Vanessa marooned on an island after a massive storm obliterated the ship and killed most of the sailors. Baltimore, with his pig leg, proving that he's a superior swimmer, helped Vanessa to make it to this small island. And then <clears throat> they find ships, uh, husks of broken ships, shipwrecks, all along this coast of this small island where they've been marooned. And Vanessa explains to them that most of these ships are what they term plague ships. When the plague first broke out, hundreds of people succumbed. They put these people on ships and just set them to sail free on the ocean to find their to to meet their own destiny and most of these people died on the ships before they could reach land again and then the ships seemed to have um, fetched up on this uh, atoll or the small island where Baltimore and Vanessa now find themselves so these plague ships are dotting the coast of this island and there's even some sh um, that sank uh, nearby uh, about 100 meters or so into the water. And you've got this beautiful uh, uh, page by Ben Stenbeck where he shows these broken husks with some skeletal bodies floating in the water. Um, 
it's a great shot. It's really good illustration, really creepy, really disturbingly grotesque. And then um, it seems that most of these um, people who have washed up on the shore, these dead bodies, these corpses, have been infected with some kind of a fungus. Their entire bodies are covered with this fungal matter. So this fungi comes from below the ocean, uh, another mystery which Baltimore and Vanessa are pondering. But they obviously have to spend the night and wait for rescue because no other way to get off this island if they don't have a ship or a boat at least. So then um, they do decide to spend the night. Baltimore tells Vanessa more about his past. And um, as they explore the beach, they find other wrecks, wrecks that weren't part of the plague ship uh, exodus. These wrecks were German submarines called Furiani, Furiani submarines. And they've also been wrecked and they're on a different part of the beach. So Baltimore and Vanessa explore them. Uh, during their explorations, when they enter one of these submarine uh, wrecks, the dead reanimate and they start to attack them. And it seems like they're not particularly vampires. They are zombies, but zombies that are intelligent. And since they speak to Baltimore and they especially uh, specifically speak to Vanessa. So Baltimore, with his um, usual skill, cuts them apart. Vanessa almost dies, but she escapes into the light of day. And these zombies, much like vampires, seem to be afraid of the light. And uh, Vanessa uh, jumps to safety uh, through the door of this submarine wreck, and one of the zombies is glaring at her, unwilling to go into the sun to pursue her. And he, and he says, I'll have you, girl. And then Baltimore saves the day by decapitating these two zombies who are waiting to presumably tear Vanessa apart. They don't seem to have a predilection towards eating brains like normal zombies are supposed to have, but still, great scene, uh, some good panels. Baltimore um, shows his you know, knowledge of the undead and we learn that it's not just limited to vampires. He knows a lot about zombies as well. But they spend the night then far away from these submarine wrecks and the plague ships because it turns out that this fungal matter has something to do with these um, zombies and these corpses walking. And um, as they sit around the fire, Baltimore again recounts his past. So that uh, gets us to issue four, where we learn that uh, the plague is called the Red Death. And Baltimore has recovered from his stay in the army hospital. He's traveling with a friend to his hometown uh, where his father is the Lord and where his bride is waiting for him. Um, and she's called Elowen, a very beautiful girl, brilliantly drawn by Ben Steinbeck. And when they arrive, Baltimore learns the sad truth he's brother and sister and mother and father have succumbed to the rare death and 
the, the plague has claimed their lives. It's only his bride, Elowen, and the servants who are left. So he immediately falls into a state of depression. He's bedridden for a couple of weeks. And then doctors come to see him. They can determine the cause of his malady. Obviously, it's psychological. Suddenly, a servant comes and says, a new doctor has arrived, a doctor with a scar and one eye missing. And he's being entertained by Miss Elowen in the parlor. So upon hearing this, Baltimore uh, leaps out of bed. He knows who it is. He knows it's Haggis. And as he runs downstairs, a gruesome scene greets him, which I'm obviously not going to spoil for anybody, but it's suitably disturbing. So Baltimore, definitely, this, this explains his personal obsession with the vampire Haggis. They met on the battlefield during World War I. Uh, Baltimore caused Haggis a lot of pain, and Haggis cursed the earth because of this and awoke to his um, vampiric nature and, and true vamp- vampiric state. And then um, Haggis has been on the rampage ever since, specifically meaning to wreak vengeance against Baltimore and his family. So um, as Baltimore recounts this tale, Vanessa comes to learn more of uh, the origins and she starts to see that uh, it's Baltimore's fault that this whole plague has struck the earth. So she's not so sure if she wants to keep, um, remain Baltimore's companion, so to speak, because it seems that he is really cursed and it might result in her death as well, just like it resulted in the deaths of Baltimore's family. Um, at the end of issue four, we see them falling asleep around the fire and the fungal matter is slowly creeping up the beach and covering all the corpses it can find, as well as the corpses within the submarine wrecks. And there's a strange fog that's being released by these fungal pods popping open, releasing some spores into the air. So that's the way issue four ends. Very creepy issue, more of a flashback tale, really, where we learn Baltimore's true enmity towards Haggis and how he's been pursuing him ever since um, Haggis visited his family and poor Elowen. And then we have, we get straight into issue five, the final issue of the plague ships. This is a really good issue because it culminates in a huge battle between Baltimore and the undead on the beach. Um, So I don't want to give too much spoilers away, but basically... Um, you've got some great art from Ben Stenbeck again. There are some sailors who are apparently from the submarine wrecks who were wearing deep sea exploration suits. Now, I'm not sure if they were uh, current during the 1920s or uh, just after World War One, I, I should say, because there's quite a few of them here. They look almost like huge robotic, yeah, robots intent on conquering this beach and they're storming the beach in Baltimore and Vanessa are the only ones who have to hold back the tide. So during this massive battle, um, Vanessa almost succumbs. She almost dies. Baltimore locks her, thereby saving her life. He locks her in one of the empty submarine wrecks. And she basically has to wait out this magnificent, brutal battle between Baltimore and the, the reanimated dead. 
And suffice to say, at the end of the comic, Vanessa, in fact, decides uh, that Baltimore is uh, more trouble than he's worth, and she would rather return, become the apprentice of her witch grandmother. But that in itself holds uh, some form of horror, because uh, she can never return home because of a visitor who has uh, seen fit to enter the house of her gypsy witch grandmother, a judge by the name of Judge Duvich, whom we spoke about earlier. So Baltimore's tale continues in the second volume. And uh, yeah, it's a, a good ending. It, it culminates, like I say, in a giant battle, in a big battle between Baltimore and the undead. But throughout every issue, you've got a lot of gaps being filled in by flashbacks about what really happened to the earth and how the Red Death has affected it. <clears throat> Strangely enough, uh, the name of this plague being borrowed from Poe's story, The Mask of the Red Death. And uh, Mignola does that quite often. He borrows a lot from folklore, mythology, and also from 19th century writers. Not just 19th century, I, su I should say he frequently uses Lovecraft and many of Lovecraft's great old ones and ideas from the Necronomicon and so forth in his Hellboy work. So Baltimore's got a little bit of that, but Baltimore focuses more on the old world of vampires, zombies, uh, things like that, ancient gods, not, not so much, not so much the indifferent uh, cosmic beings of Lovecraft. But like I said, those jellyfish, I don't know what they were, and there must be something to explain them. Right, well, that's the first story arc of Baltimore. So we're going to take a little bit of a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about my personal history with this comic, and we'll get into our favorite panels and favorite bits of dialogue as well. Graphic artist Mike Mignola of Hellboy fame and Bram Stoker award-winning author Christopher Golden have teamed up to write Baltimore, an illustrated novel that is a feast for the eyes and the imagination. Welcome, Mike and Chris. Hello, hi, how are you? I hear Baltimore began as a concept for a vampire graphic novel. Yeah, I came up with the idea for Baltimore while I was watching a movie, and it was a boring movie, so my mind wandered, and I started plotting this thing, but realized it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and after a while I realized I'd never I'd never get around to doing it as a comic. It was just too long and too involved. I wrote up my notes for it, and uh, Chris took it and turned it into what it is now. Well, and the beautiful thing about it is that I have been hearing Mike talk about this thing for years. He's been planning it for so long that I was really surprised when he decided he didn't want to do it as a graphic novel, that he wanted to do it as a novel. Tell us the story of Baltimore. A young military officer, his entire unit is destroyed in the battlefield and he's horribly wounded. And while he's out there thinking he's going to die, in the night he is attacked by something, something vaguely vampiric. And he is wounded already and then much, much worse by this creature. But he also manages to wound it. When he does so, he scars it forever. And the vampire decides that from that point on, his vengeance, it's going to murder everyone and everything he loves. And through that, he's forged, really, into the ultimate vampire hunter. 
Way back in 2007, I happened upon this illustrated novel, Baltimore, and I, I think I finished it within two or three days. It's not a very lengthy read. It's about 200, 240 pages. But it was so good that I sat down and read it again right after I had finished it the first time around. So I wanted more. And luckily, three years later, Mignola and company came out with the comic book series. The story intrigued me about this World War I soldier who courted disaster by attacking these vampires who had been preying on humanity animalistically without conscious thought for thousands of years and how he had inadvertently been the cause of their reawakening and now destroying the earth. So it's the end times, it's the apocalypse. There's giant sea creatures coming out of the ocean, plagues, killing off most of humanity, death's angels in the form of vampires, if you will, slaying the rest who are not affected by the plague or either turning them into demons themselves. Great, uh, you know, fodder for horror fanatics, I would say, and I wanted more. So that's why I've been reading Baltimore ever since, since 2010 at least. I happened upon the illustrated novel by chance, just browsing through uh, Amazon and reading reviews online. And I, I love Mignola. I love all of his Hellboy stuff, his BPRD work is exceptional. And um, I thought, he's trying his hand at a novel? It didn't really work for Alan Moore. And it usually doesn't work for comic book writers who attempt novels. Um, I say usually, there are exceptions, of course. Um, Brad Meltzer, he's a novelist, but a successful comic book writer. Still, Mignola is more of an artist. So I was kind of worried, but I picked it up and was pleasantly surprised. Obviously, Christopher Golden, a horror writer, um, uh, famous in his own right. I haven't read a lot of his stuff prior to reading Baltimore, but I got into some of his Hellboy novels later on. And um, he's, he's obviously a great writer. His descriptions are engaging. His characters even more so. So he's a, a definitely readable. And Mignola partnered up with him to create this entirely new universe, almost totally separate from his uh, Hellverse, as the Hellboy universe has become known. And I enjoy both equally. I might even, in the future, become more of a fan of Baltimore than Hellboy himself. Who knows? So every time a new Baltimore issue comes out, it's at the top of my pile. I have to read it. And I hope that you listeners who haven't encountered Baltimore in your reading, pick it up. Try it. If you already have, reread it. And send me your thoughts and comments to our email address, which um, I haven't received a lot of emails yet. Only one so far. But please, any feedback, criticism is welcome. So you can send that to 
darklongbox at gmail.com. Or you can reach me on Twitter at darklongbox. I'm also um, on WordPress where I have a blog called The Long Box of Darkness at longboxofdarkness.com. So I'd love to hear from you. So let's address this email that I received last week. It uh, referenced uh, episode two, which I did on the eyes of the cat. I played a, a game with Aaron, and there were two names Aaron had taken from Japanese manga, which I wasn't familiar with. And um, I think those names were the reason I eventually lost the game that I played with her. Um, the names were Dororo and Kitaro. So the listener, Kathy, she sent me a mail saying, uh, explaining who those two characters were. So thanks, Kathy. I did um, find out who they were immediately after recording the show. Erin schooled me on them and obviously berated me for not knowing who they were. Dororo a character created by Osamu Tezuka in the 1960s. Um, it is a little bit horror, I would say. I, I have since picked up the collection within the last two weeks. And um, it's about this samurai-type character who's, um, when he's born, his father <coughs> offers up his limbs to a group of demons each demon takes a body part from this child, leaving this child this formless little husk. Um, he's abandoned in the wilderness by his father, <clears throat> who becomes a warlord because of the favors the demon bestow on him. And then he's raised by a man who makes artificial limbs for him. And he also starts training with these artificial limbs. Some of them have weapons encased within them, blades mostly, and he becomes a, um, a fighter, a samurai-type level fighter who then kills these demons in order to reclaim his body parts. And each demon is unique. Each one who possesses a body part, it's almost like some kind of insane video game. In fact, in fact I think there was a video game um, from Japan uh, by the name Dororo, but I never played it. It was in the early 2000s. And then Kitaro is the name of a little demonic boy with only one eye and an eyeball with um, legs and, and hands that sit on his shoulder. And they are also monster hunters. They slay evil monsters, even though they are monsters themselves. Two famous Japanese creations, Dororo and Kitaro. I've read the first volume of Kitaro, uh, since the last podcast, I've also read a couple of hundred pages from the Dororo collection by Osamu Tezuka. And both of them are very enjoyable. Um, they're also horror light, even less so than Baltimore. There's not a lot of blood, not a lot of uh, scary scenes, but I would say that it definitely deals with a lot of horror tropes. You've got demons, ghosts. It's almost horror comedy really, but there are some disturbing things, psychological horror that sometimes happens to some of the characters. can't believe those writers went there, but they do. Um, so I'd recommend them. Erin certainly does. Um, she wants you all to read them. So pick those up and tell me what you think of them as well. 
Alright, let's have another break, and when you come back, we'll do our History of Horror segment. system. So for the comic that we talked about, Baltimore, I would have to give this four fangs out of five. It was almost flawless. The only things that could have been done better, I think, would have been to uh, make Baltimore a little bit more um, talkative, perhaps, or uh, given him more of a personality. He seems to be very one-note, very humorless, very... um, stoic, not much personality to him at all, even when he was uh, still unaffected by a tragedy. He didn't seem to be a a special standout character. The only things that make him notable are his weapons and his way with war, really. Also his occult knowledge. Other than that, there's not much to Lord Baltimore. He's an extremely... A good fighter, but he's not a very likable character per se. He's got a great history behind him, but that's about all. Um, there's some great panels throughout all these five issues. My favorite panel was one I mentioned before when Baltimore's company was ambushed. His platoon was ambushed on the fields of um, Europe and they were shot apart. And then probably my second favorite panel is the panel where the giant bats descend that night on the field of corpses. It's rendered brilliantly um, by Ben Stenbeck. And you can really feel the fear emanating from the page when you read it because Baltimore's helpless, he's weak, he's being pursued by this bat who's crawling after him, this giant bat. He's seeing his friends and cohorts being torn apart in front of his eyes. What must he have felt at that point in time? And then there's also another brilliant panel when Baltimore uh, finds the remains of one of his loved ones in his mansion, and then he sees Hagus flying away in the rain in his bat form. And then Baltimore walks out into the rain on his peg leg and shouts up at the sky, So you want war? Let it be war. Let it be war then. That's a great scene. You you really feel Baltimore's fury, but also his extreme horror at what he has just witnessed and his intense hatred for Hagus at that moment. Then the third, or I should say the fourth best panel in the entire series would probably be a shot of Baltimore standing on top one of the submarine husks on the beach, that little island where they were marooned, gazing out at an army of the dead marching up out of the waves onto the beach. And as I mentioned before, that this army of the dead does not only consist of zombies covered 
in fungi, but also um, it consists of these huge undersea exploration suits. Uh, looks like alien robots marching up this beach to confront Baltimore. So those are my favorite panels. Uh, they're illustrated remarkably well. But then there are also some pretty gruesome panels. I can't call them my favorites, but they're, they're suitably horrific. And one of them would be um, Baltimore when he was hunting down a vampire. You first see this lady vampire crawling up a wall and through the window. And you see this horrific creature crawling into the uh, nursery where a baby, uh, probably a few months old, three or four months old, lies sleeping in his crib. So this female vampire is obviously intent upon snacking on this baby. And then Baltimore is waiting in the nursery for this vampire. And so that's a weird scene. It's, it's very disturbing because if you think about it, a vampire slithering into the room of a baby, into a nursery, uh, that is really upsetting, especially for me since I am a father. I've got a little girl. And I, I don't like to think about that. But also the way Ben Stenbeck draws it, it's very, very um, evocative, very terrifying. And then um, just think about the character of Baltimore in that situation. He, what Was he using that baby as bait? How did he go into that house? Did he break into the house himself and just go to wait up in the baby's room for a vampire to sneak in? Very weird, but uh, very disturbing. And then the best bit of dialogue throughout the uh, series was when Baltimore was rescued by the gypsy witch and her daughter Vanessa. He wakes up on the floor of their uh, kitchen and the gypsy witch comments and says, there, you see the man's gristle, even Hal would spit him out. And Baltimore immediately wakes up and points a bayonet at the old woman saying, back witch, you'll not have me. And then the old witch says, I don't want you, fool, but watch your tongue while I'll call the lightning down on you as I did on the leeches. And then Vanessa steps in saying, listen to yourself. You can no more call down lightning than you could do any um, other form of magic. But in fact, it turns out Vanessa doesn't know this. Her grandmother truly is a witch. She just does have those powers, but she chooses not to believe this. And then Baltimore starts bantering with Vanessa and the gypsy, and they're basically arguing about the reality of magic and, and vampires and the plague. So for some reason, Vanessa doesn't believe her grandmother has magic, but she believes in all the rest, the red death, the supernatural vampires. So uh, that that's a great bit of dialogue there from Christopher Golden and Mignola, or probably just from Mignola. I don't think Golden had much to do with writing the comic book series itself. There's also the strange bit where the characters seem to be talking or using this one phrase over and over again, um, which could have multiple meanings depending on how you look at it. And uh, we first hear Baltimore saying that. I mentioned it earlier. As soon as he wakes up um, from the witch's ministrations, he jumps up and puts a bayonet to her throat and says, you'll not have me, witch. And she says, I don't want you. And then later on, when Vanessa is attacked by a zombie, and the zombie has this feeling of uh, sexual perversion uh, about him because 
the way he attacks Vanessa and what he ultimately says to her about I'll have you, girl, implies, yeah, it does have a bit of sexual overtones. And that comes back to Lord Baltimore's comment in the beginning where he said, you know, you'll not have me, witch. <laughs> and the witch thinking, you know, what, what is he on about? Um, does he actually think I want him, this peg-legged freak? <laughs> so you know, weird that this phrase keeps cropping up throughout the comic. On the one hand, it could mean, you know, I'll, um, I'll kill you, I'll murder you, um, I'll defeat you. On the other hand, it could be, you know, like I say, have a sexual connotation. So um, then another part that's really um, interesting to me and that really stood out was the fact that Baltimore being so... Um, bland in his interactions with people there's a scene with him and Vanessa on the beach when they're sitting around the fire and he's telling her a tale and she's just been you know scared to death after having almost been killed by the creatures in the submarine wreck and Baltimore's comforting her he's he's holding her close hugging her and she's looking up at him looking into his eyes and you kind of expect okay this is it Vanessa and Baltimore, they're going to get together at this point in time. But no, Baltimore backs down, takes the easy way out. He says, you better get some sleep. Tomorrow's going to be a long day. Something like that. <laughs> and Vanessa just, she doesn't look disappointed. But, you know, as, as a reader, I kind of expected something more to happen there because she seems to be attracted to Baltimore from the get-go. But he just shuts her down. <laughs> So that ties in with the fact that he doesn't have much personality. There's not much to his character. He could still be pining for his wife, Elowen. Of course, that's a noble way, especially for a lord, to act. But I was kind of disappointed that Baltimore didn't at least, you know, take what comfort he could find in this brutal, hellish world that he's created. Maybe he thinks he doesn't deserve it. That's a form of masochism, the way he's punishing himself. So, very interesting. But that's enough about the Baltimore comic now. Let's get into our History of Horror section. Herman's History of Horror. We talked a bit last week about adventures into the unknown and how horror comics really took off in the late 1940s. I've since picked up a couple of the collections on Comixology. I think there are four of them. I've read through the first two, and the stories are really, really uh, creative, and yeah, it's truly imaginative for the time. You could see a lot of modern horror films based off of stories like these. I'm not saying they're uh, direct imitations, uh, uh, horror film, films that we know, but they definitely got some inspiration from these early tales of sequential horror. So I, before we get into the 1950s, I want to sort of finish with the 1940s and round it off nicely. Um, I don't want to just gloss over too much of Adventures into the Unknown because it did have quite a significant impact on the early horror tales and horror writers. So um, one of the earliest stories in Adventures into the Unknown, number 17, was a story called Who Goes There? 
And it had a plot very similar to The Thing from Another World, the movie that was released um, in the same year as the comic book came out. So this is now uh, late or early 1950s. And um, there's also another story called The Magic Formula, which features gigantism. And if you remember classic movies from the 50s, such as Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, that's technically science fiction, but it could be seen as horror um, in a roundabout way. Then you'd see some of these stories from Adventures into the Unknown preceded the movies, some by only a couple of months, some by a couple of years, but still, you, you kind of have to imagine that some of these filmmakers, or at least the screenwriters, must have been reading some of the comic books at the time in order to capture the zeitgeist of, of popular culture. And some of them must have happened upon some ideas they like and transcribed it to film. So uh, I found that very interesting upon reading through these Adventures into the Unknown comic books. Of course, there are a couple of stories that feature the typical vampire, zombie, or werewolf tales. Uh, but there's one notable one um, called Fangs of Terror, which was, I think it appeared in Adventures into the Unknown number 22, where were werewolves don't attack people in general, but they uh, are sort of corpse eaters. Yeah, they're, they're carrion eaters. They raid cemeteries for fresh corpses. And... Uh, some people are, you know, they know about the werewolves, they're intent upon wiping them out. And the werewolves in this story uh, are sympathetic characters. As a reader, you kind of feel for them. They're, they're almost like the, the heroes of the tale, um, even though they are mostly destroyed by the end of it. Um, strangely enough, with cyanide rather than silver, that's the way the, that the people, you know, kill them, uh, the ones who are after them. So uh, that was a notable uh, story for me because it had a different uh, idea behind it. Werewolves were not actually that fearsome, even though the tale's name is Fangs of Terror. They mostly subsist upon the dead, on cadavers. And... Uh, you're wondering, why can't the humans just let them be in this tale? So the horror actually comes um, not just from them eating the corpses, but from what the humans do to exterminate them, which is sort of kind of almost a uh, kind of chemical warfare, which could be a commentary on, you know, uh, multiple things at the time, you know, chemical uh, weapons being used against civilian populations. And then there's another... Uh, tale, which I want to highlight, and that is a story called, called Shadow of the Wolf, where a werewolf, uh, who's actually kind of like a serial killer type of character, um, he inherits a ranch, and um, the, along with two members of his family, and he decides to kill them off in werewolf form so that he can be the sole owner of the property. So it's kind of like presented as a murder mystery, 
because people are, as, as a reader in the beginning, you don't really know who the werewolf is from the get-go. You kind of have to figure it out for yourself, which one of these three people who inherited this ranch is the werewolf. You kind of have to solve the mystery. But the horror element's definitely there the, in the gruesome murders being perpetrated by this uh, psychopathic werewolf. So you've got your werewolf tales, you've got your typical vampire's tales. Uh, then there is a story which I really, really um, enjoyed called Talent for Terror. And it features Medusa, the Gorgon from Greek mythology. Um, and she's been, she's made it through to modern, modern times. She's still turning people to stone. And you find out by the end of the tale that Medusa herself has been masquerading as a sculptress called Maddie George. And that's how she's been getting away with all these murders. By obviously, you know, turning people into stone and then say, oh, wait, this, this, this is a sculpture of the dead person. So the perfect crime. So a lot of good tales. Um, there's also one, there, there are a lot of tales actually featuring the devil. He makes deals with people and it turns sour. They get their greedy comeuppance. And then there are a couple of stories that deal with straightforward science fiction turning into horror. You've got scientists finding living dinosaurs in the Everglades. Um, there's even a couple of stories uh, where scientific explanations are given for the Mary Celeste phenomenon, the ghost ship, as well as, um, I think, uh, in Adventures into the Unknown number 41, there's a scientist who injects himself with a serum that turns him into a giant blood-drinking vampiric spider. And he crawls into a woman's bedroom uh, on the cover. It's quite frightening, really, the way that these early horror artists drew these pictures. Because at that point in time, the sensibilities of children who read these comic books, and indeed it was available to, to all who bought it off the newsstand at the time, that it wasn't considered by the creators. They tried to make the comic book as gory and as schlocky as possible. So anybody could literally pick it up and read it without obviously thinking what this would do to a young child. The worst it would do is obviously give him nightmares. But as we'll see later on in more discussions on horror, uh, during the 50s, when there was a witch hunt against the creators of these horror comics, it was sort of argued that the horror comics did more to contribute towards social ills, such as juvenile delinquency and even murder. So, but at the time, it wasn't really an issue for the comic book creators and for the kids who read the comics and the parents too. Everybody just read them. The other day on Pinterest, I saw a picture of an old man uh, during, I think, 1948. The picture was dated as. And he's holding his granddaughter up near a spinner rack of comic books. And it's all horror comic books. And you've got this old man reading to his granddaughter, who's probably about six or seven. 
and he's reading from a horror comic and the cover of this thing is frightening. And the girl does have a frightening expression on her face as her grandpa's reading this comic to her. So yeah, that was the idea at the time that, you know, it's just entertainment, just another form of entertainment, no harm done. So that concludes Adventures into the Unknown. But since it was so popular, it definitely spawned some imitators. Or I shouldn't really say imitators. Most of these uh, titles were also published by the same company that published um, Adventures into the Unknown, American Comics Group. They started publishing a sister title called Forbidden Worlds, which focused a lot on science fiction horror as well. Uh, but there were quite a few supernatural tales which were decidedly not science fiction. Uh, one in particular uh, called Demon of Destruction was about an, a young man who unleashed an ancient and monstrous demon from a locked tomb. And the, the demon then goes on to murder a couple of individuals. And as he does so, he grows in size with every murder. Eventually, he knocks down bridges and attacks the Empire State Building. And there's another story about uh, a monster doll. In fact, that is the title of the story, too, where a scientist sort of investigates rumors that in the previous century, a man had managed to turn a woman's corpse into a robot by melding mechanical parts with her flesh. So this is sort of an early riff on the cyborg concept popularized by Isaac Asimov. And this so-called living doll then becomes his wife. So uh, obviously with horrific consequences too. Great stories, great imaginative tales that I enjoyed reading here. After Forbidden Worlds, which had quite a few notable stories in it, but, but mostly science fiction, horror, there was another publication called Out of the Night. And... Um, a title called Skeleton Hand. They were all anthology-style horror comic publishers. And they debuted in around 1951, but they only lasted about 20 issues or so. The same kind of stories as Forbidden Worlds and Adventures into the Unknown. So you have a lot of these publishers trying something new, trying to uh, ride on the coattails of adventures into the unknown success. And then we eventually get to EC Comics, which stands for Entertainment Comics. And they had three notable titles. Actually, there were, were more than three, but the three standout ones that Entertainment Comics first published was Tales from the Crypt, whom we all know, Vault of Horror, less well-known, but still brilliant, and then a title called Shock, Suspense Stories. And, of course, they initially became famous for the controversy surrounding them after a psychiatrist called Frederick Wortham published a book called Seduction of the Innocent in the 1950s, which linked the reading of horror comics, or comics in general actually, to juvenile delinquency and a lot of social problems of the time. But actually, 
if you look at the early EC tales, which are now widely available in uh, reprint editions from Dark Horse Publishing and from Fantagraphics, you'll see that the EC tales were a cut above everything else being done at the time. They featured superior art and masterful stories, stories definitely. And uh, the, their overall presentation was also much more sinister than the other horror comics. They also had a bit of a wry sense of humor to them. There was always some joke, uh, sometimes an inappropriate joke, but it served the tale, which was injected by the writers. And a lot of this had to do with the atmosphere cultivated in the EC offices at the time by Bill Gaines, the founder and publisher of EC. Well, that's about it for our horror segment this week. So we'll look at some more of EC's tales next week, and then we'll discuss the impact that Frederick Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent had on comics and indeed the very society of the time and how this affected readers and popular culture. After the break, we'll look at our horror profile segment for this week. And this week we're spotlighting a character from Neil Gaiman's The Sandman comic called The Corinthian. We're having dinner. And Alan has just written the longest, goriest sequence in From Hell. I said, so what are you working on? He said, well, I've just written this great bit. <laughs> William Garland, like, it's the death of Mary Kelly. It all takes place, it's like 50 pages long. It all takes place in this one room. And first of all, he goes and he cuts her up. He's killed her. And then, you know, he's pulling out her kidney, and it's a very Well, that's Neil Gaiman having a go at an Alan Moore impression. Much better than my Alan Moore impression, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, we're focusing on the Corinthian in this week's horror profile section, where we profile characters from horror comics. The Corinthian was first seen in Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, issue 10, in October 1989. And he was initially a nightmare created by Morpheus, the god of dreams. And in the same story arc, Morpheus destroys him as punishment for going rogue. Uh, it turns out that the Corinthian developed a taste for human eyeballs and while he was killing people and snacking on their eyes, Dream unmade him and returned him to idea stuff in the dreaming, which is Morpheus's realm. So later on, the Corinthian is remade, and this time he's perfected by Dream without the personality flaw that led him to uh, go on a killing spree. And he serves as Dream's henchman, uh, type of, not a bodyguard, but someone who 
is sent into the human world to get things done. And the Corinthian is a frightening uh, character because he was originally intended to be, be a serial killer by dream when, when Morpheus created him. And he has no eyes in his head. Instead, where his eyeballs should be, inside his eye sockets, um, there are rows of tiny teeth. So he always wears shades to block um, these mouths for eyes that he has in his face from humans to, uh, so as not to alarm them and give away what he truly is. He also turns out to be possibly one of the most powerful of Dream's creations. He later on battles Loki, the Norse god, one-on-one -on -one and wins, uh, snapping Loki's neck in the process. He also takes on a demonic wolf, which he easily overcomes. And uh, he is one of the most visually interesting and arresting characters as well. He is very thin, sports a shock of white hair, and very pale, but when he traverses the human world, he wears a white t-shirt and blue jeans, and his distinctive John Lennon-type sunglasses um, make him a standout character, and when he takes them off just before he kills someone, you see these two mouths where his eyes should be. So the Corinthian, also uh, noted for frequently turning up in the comic book series The Dreaming, which um, succeeded the Sandman comic after the Sandman comic uh, ran its course. He turned up most recently in one of the new Sandman collections too, which is a Sandman overture. Neil Gaiman published it last year, uh, or actually in 2015, but the collection came out last year. And it did feature the first original version of the Corinthian, which is the more evil version, I guess. The second Corinthian acts more in the vein of a superhero, even though he horrifically kills his opponents. So the Corinthian, an interesting character in the annals of horror comics, Definitely one of the most frightening creations any creator has ever come up with on the pages of a comic book. I'd advise you to check him out. You can find him in the Sandman collections called The Doll's House and later on um, in the section or the stories called The Kindly Ones. Well, that's about it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to give a shout out to some of my friends who've helped to promote the show and also to pimp some of their products. First off, I'd like to say a big thank you to my friend John Souter from the Facebook group United Nations of Horror. John is a great artist. I've recently picked up uh, two issues he did called Halloween Man. Issue 14 and 15, you can find it on Comixology. And I really enjoy John's illustrations, very distinctive style. So I advise you listeners to check that out. Halloween Man, great horror comic, funny, irreverent, I love it. And then another one of my friends, 
a lady by the name of Sue Rovins. She's a published author. She writes horror. I'm currently reading her novel, Bad Fish, and I'd recommend you to check out Sue's stuff. You can find her um, more about Sue at suerovens.com. And also on Amazon, you can find all her books uh, in Kindle format, or you can order it um, if you want the paperback. Uh, Bad Fish, I could highly recommend it. I haven't finished it yet, but so far I'm really enjoying what I'm reading. So a shout out to John Souter and to Sue Rovins for helping me to promote the show. And then I also want to say a big thank you to uh, my friends from the Horror Etc. podcast and the United Nations of Horror podcast who's been helping me to put the show out there, uh, especially to Chris Downs for uh, advice. He gave me some good advice on how to keep my show fresh and some good ideas. And the self-same John Souder, he's been um, very helpful in brainstorming some ideas with me about the show as well. So thank you to all of them. And then I would advise all of our listeners, this is not really comic book related, but to check out the Diabolique magazine, which you can order through the mail. That's Diabolique magazine, which focuses on horror movies and horror movie reviews and discussions, articles written on horror films. A friend of mine called Rebecca Booth, she's got, um, she's the uh, editor of the magazine. She's got some articles um, that are very interesting and I'd recommend our listeners to also give that a try. If you can't uh, ship it to your location, you can find it digitally on the App Store. So with that, it's time for me to bid you adieu but I'll be back again next week for another peek with you, my listeners, into the long box of darkness. Darkness.